This is a Federal News Network podcast. When the Defense Information Systems Agency sought a new satellite services acquisition on behalf of the Navy, it included a spreadsheet so bidders could fill in their prices. But the spreadsheet included the prices from the current contract, which were supposed to be inaccessible. Uh-oh. For how things turned out, Smith Pactor McWhorter Procurement Attorney Joseph Petrillo. Joe, tell us about this crazy case. Sure. Uh, this is uh, another Excel spreadsheet disaster. Uh, we talked about one a few weeks ago. It involved an acquisition of satellite telecom services for the Navy's Military Sealift Command. It was an acquisition of commercial satellite telecommunications services, and they were divided into both bandwidth and non-bandwidth services. And the contract would be able to run to for up to 10 years in duration. Part of the contract, as you said, was an Excel spreadsheet of the various different line items with blanks for offerors to include their price. Unfortunately, this spreadsheet had hidden tabs, 19 hidden tabs, and those concluded, among other things, historical pricing information from the current contract. So in Marset, which was the incumbent contractor holding that contract, notified the government and said, look, you've disclosed our pricing information, do something about it. So the government deleted the offending spreadsheet from the SAM.gov website. But they understood, and this was the case, third-party aggregators had already downloaded it, and it was out there, it was available. Is pricing on a current contract public information in the first place? Unit pricing usually is not. There's a series of cases that indicates that unit pricing can be protected from release under the Freedom of Information Act. Okay. Uh, There's complications to that, and things have changed a bit with a new Supreme Court case, but there's a, a body of case law out there that supports keeping unit pricing confidential. This particular spreadsheet, however, was out there, and the government looked at what had happened. They did a couple of things. They changed the CLIN structure somewhat, so it wasn't exactly the same as the existing contract. They added a certification saying that bidders would have to say that they hadn't relied on or used that information in proposal preparation because of its, quote, unreliability, unquote. In the whole, they thought it wasn't all that important. So Inmarsat felt that that wasn't enough, and they protested the matter to GAO. And GAO ultimately upheld the protest. GAO relied on its prior case law, saying it was improper to disclose proprietary information during acquisition, and they referenced also regulations on organizational conflict of interest, which overlapped in this area. And as the incumbent, Imarsat was also a bidder for the follow-on then also, correct? Yes, clearly. Clearly a bidder from the follow-on. There was a presumption that that release would be harmful, but you know you can rebut the presumption if the information was stale or adequate measures were taken to take care of the release. Because these prices do change over time. I mean, like telecom services, often there's a downward trend in price over time. So year-old or two-year-old prices may or may not be helpful in bidding for what's ahead. Well, that interestingly was a factor in this case. As I mentioned, there were both non-bandwidth and bandwidth pricing. And with regard to bandwidth pricing, GAO denied the protest and held that the release of the information was not prejudicial. First of all, because there was a showing that prices in that sector varied a lot. There was a lot of volatility. And secondly, because the pricing that was released was partial and fairly old. So there was no harm done there. 
But the situation was different for non-bandwidth pricing. There, GAO found that those prices were likely to be a key basis for differentiating between proposals. It was unimpressed with the changes made to the solicitation, which was reorganizing CLINs, but the same items were there. They were just put together differently. And they felt that the certification was inadequate, in part because it was directed at the issue of unreliability, rather than understanding who had what information and what was done with it. We're speaking with Joseph Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pachter, McWhorter. Yeah, that term unreliable is kind of vague, I guess, on the government's part. When everyone saw what the prices were for the incumbent, that's pretty cut and dried. So the protest was upheld. What happened next? Well, what happens is the government has to go back and revise the solicitation to find a better way to mitigate the harm caused by the inadvertent release. This case is different from the one we described a few weeks ago um, called Tetratech. That was an interesting case, but it involved a much more limited release, simply the profit margin for one of the uh, option years in the incumbent contract. And secondly, the case simply discussed whether or not that information was covered by the Procurement Integrity Act. This one discussed matters in a much broader legal context. Yeah, so that means that if someone receives information about a competing bid as a company, then you kind of have a couple of choices. Either just throw it out, send it back stamped, we received this but did not look at it and certify it with the CEO or something. But in this case, the government sent out the information, and once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, basically. Right. The decision does relate the tale of what happened in this particular case where one of the offerors noticed that it had improper information. And they segregated it, made sure it was not further disseminated. They determined who had seen it. There were two people. And they, on their own, said that they were going to keep those two people from further participation in the procurement, which they felt kind of bitter about because they were key staff and they wanted to use them in proposal preparation. But that's the ethical way to do it as a company. Right. They stepped up and did it the right way. And I think it didn't look good that the government hadn't done as much as one of the other offerors. All right. And the other question is, what kind of operational controls are in place at DISA in this case that they would send a spreadsheet out full of pricing information? Well, you know, that's something they're going to have to look at as well, I'm sure. Because there's many stories of controls and locks put on PDFs and so forth that are easily undone in the early days of these types of technologies where the government tried to redact, but the redaction was easily undone by the recipient. In this case, you know, why include it at all, even if it is locked files? Because anyone can unlock anything if, you, if you're so inclined in a, an well, Excel spreadsheet. As technology advances, we're always learning, always learning. Joseph Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. 
Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. 
You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance in some cases and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author, she turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. 
Learn more at pluralsight.com slash vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 